You will find my text this evening in 1 Peter chapter 1 and at verses 18 and 19. 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Be ye holy for I am holy. That is the great burden of the Apostle Peter's message in this context. And here in this context he is supplying motives that should urge us on to pursue holiness of life. He is giving reasons why Christian people should be a holy people. He mentions several such motives. Uh, there is the greatness and the grandeur of this salvation that is ours. There is the holiness of God himself. Be ye holy for I am holy. There is the fact that we are but sojourners, strangers, pilgrims here in this world. There is the fact that God is the one who judges all and that he does so impartially. And uh, uh, so on. But I wish this evening particularly to focus upon this particular reason that he gives for being holy people, this particular motive that he urges upon us to spar us on to holiness of life, the redemptive work of Christ. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without Notice with me then, first of all, from what Christ has redeemed his people. From what Christ has redeemed his people. What is it that he has redeemed us from? He has redeemed us from slavery, from bondage. The very term redemption speaks of that. It tells us that. Long ago, God redeemed his people from their terrible bondage, their slavery in Egypt, in Christ. He redeems his people from a far greater bondage, bondage to sin and to Satan. But notice how it is that Peter puts it here. He says he has redeemed you from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. That is how he puts it, vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. Conversation, of course, means way of life it always means that in the scriptures in our version of the scriptures it is a much more comprehensive term than conversation in current English usage it has reference not just to speech it means behavior it means conduct it means one's whole lifestyle vain conversation vain is empty worthless futile barren frivolous fruitless vain conversation a vain way of life is a way of life that is empty that is devoid of any real worth 
it gives to a person no lasting inner satisfaction. It will do our fellow men no lasting good. It is unacceptable to God. Indeed, it has upon it the stamp of God's disapproval, the stamp of his, convert, of his condemnation. It is vain, it is empty, it is worthless. Those whose way of life is a vain way of life, vain conversation, are walking according to their lusts and their ignorance. There is a terrible description of this vain conversation given to us by the Apostle Paul in the second chapter of his epistle to the Ephesians. He says there it is walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. It is living to fulfill our lusts, the lusts of the flesh, desiring and fulfilling the lusts of the flesh and of the mind. And those who live in that way, he says, are the children of wrath, even as others. If our conversation is vain conversation, a worthless, futile way of life, this vain conversation, then we are people who are following the world's ways, living in a worldly way. We are people who are dominated by Satan himself, under his control. We are people who are at the mercy of those urges within that proceed from the corrupt nature, from the sinful nature within. The flesh, as Paul calls it, desiring and fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. And we are people upon whom God's wrath rests. It rests upon us now if, our, if we're living in this way. And the wrath to come is what we are heading for. The vain conversation is a product of the sinful nature within. It is the product of our depravity the corruption within and says Peter here it is received by tradition from the fathers your vain conversation received by tradition from the fathers it has been handed down from one generation to the next the people follow the same sinful course as their forebears did the sins that they commit today may they be finding fresh ways of expressing themselves but they are the same sins that were committed by those who have gone before this vain conversation this corrupt way of life it has been handed down by tradition we have inherited it in fact we've inherited it from our forebears we have inherited it from our first parents we have been born with it we've entered into this world with a corrupt nature Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We're corrupt within by nature. We are depraved, totally depraved. That is, sin has vitiated every faculty of our being. And we are in bondage, in this dreadful bondage to sin and to Satan. There is enmity within us in our natural condition, enmity toward God. We are rebels against him, haters of God, hating all that is holy and good and heavenly, hating God and what pertains to him. The carnal mind is enmity against God, and the wrath of God rests upon us. If this is our way of life, our lifestyle, 
the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness in men. Vain conversation received by tradition from our fathers and it is from that if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ if we are the Lord's people it is from that that God has delivered that Christ has redeemed us. He has redeemed you Christian believer from that vain, futile, empty way of life received by tradition from the fathers. Don't you see then that there must be a most powerful obligation laid upon you to lead a holy life from what Christ has redeemed his people. But secondly, notice how he has redeemed his people. How he has redeemed his people. <clears throat> how has he redeemed them? Well, it is put here, first of all, negatively. For as much as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. Not with corruptible things such as silver and gold. This sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ, is of such worth, it is of such value, that it cannot be estimated in material terms. All the silver and the gold in the world are as nothing compared to the blood of Christ. Such is the blessing, such so great is the blessing or such great value is the blessing, the redemption of the soul, that it cannot be secured, it cannot be obtained by these means. Whoever they be that in their wealth their confidence do pitch and boast themselves because they are become exceeding rich. Yet none of these his brother can redeem in any way, nor can he unto God for him sufficient ransom pay. Their soul's redemption precious is, and it can never be. Take all the gold in the mines of South Africa, Take all the diamonds, the great diamonds in the world. Add in all the silver mined anywhere on earth. Top it up with all the wealth and all the banking houses of the world. And that will not be sufficient to redeem a single soul. No king's ransom can redeem you. We are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold. What a tremendous price Christ has paid for our redemption to make us holy. Surely then, surely there is a powerful obligation laid upon us to pursue holiness, to be holy people. It's put negatively. But then what he has done to redeem his people is of course put positively here. We are told here that he has redeemed us with his precious blood not with corruptible things such as silver and gold but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot by his blood by his blood shedding by his laying down of his life for his people he has procured for them this great redemption of which an essential and integral part is holiness of life. He has redeemed us by his 
precious blood, with the precious blood of Christ. Christ's blood is precious. First of all, because of the excellency of his person. The excellency of his person. He is the Son of God. God's dear Son. Heaven's well-beloved. The uh, Son of his love. God the Son. A divine person. Now, of course, God is a spirit and cannot shed blood. The Godhead cannot die. But this one is man as well. While still remaining God, he became man. He took to himself our nature and he died for our redemption. It is his divinity that gives to his sacrifice its infinite value. His blood is precious blood because of the excellency of his person. And it's precious too because of the value of the blessings it merits for believers. The value of the blessings it merits for believers. It merits for them pardon from sin. Christ by his sacrifice has procured for sinners a full and a free and an everlasting forgiveness. He has obtained for them acceptance with God acceptance with God on the ground of his own righteousness all our sins eh, our sin our every sin indeed deserves God's wrath and curse forever in this life and in the world to come but Christ by his sacrifice has obtained for his people this full and free forgiveness and also acceptance with God they are clothed with his righteousness Christ by his sacrifice has obtained for his people adoption into God's family with all the blessings, all the privileges, all the rights of children within the family circle. Christ by his sacrifice has purchased for his people the Holy Spirit and his various ministries, his sanctifying influence and his various ministries within the believer. The ascended Christ has received from the Father the promise of the Spirit and he has sent him down. And it is the Spirit indwelling the believer who makes him holy. It, he is his sanctifier. He, uh, it, is because of, it is because of his ministry within, his sanctifying influence within, that the believer dies more and more to sin and lives more and more to righteousness. And this Spirit with his sanctifying influences Christ has purchased for his people by his sacrifice by his sacrifice he has merited for his own for his own people everlasting glory he will bring them they will be brought at last into the everlasting glory he has purchased for them every spiritual blessing all the blessings of God's covenant all covenant blessings the blessings of the everlasting covenant of grace. His blood is precious because of the value of the blessings it merits for believers. They don't merit them. Christ himself merits them. His is the righteousness. And his blood is precious thirdly because of the greatness of his love in shedding it for such as we are. For a righteous man 
um, one would scarcely die. Uh, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But Christ died for us, sinners, rebels against him. Those in whose hearts there was nothing but enmity towards God and towards all that was good and holy and heavenly. He eh, died out of love for such. Out of love for such. He shed his blood that they might be redeemed. The greatness of his love. And his blood is precious. The precious blood of Christ is precious because of his sinless humanity. Fourthly, his sinless humanity. He is a lamb without blemish and without spot. The paschal lamb of Exodus chapter 12. And all these sacrificial lambs of the Old Testament dispensation, all of them types of Christ, had to be without blemish. There had to be about them no defect whatsoever. They had to be perfect specimens. The Lord Jesus Christ, God's dear Son, took our nature, took human nature, a human body and human nature, in order to make satisfaction for the sins of others. It was necessary, therefore, that he should be without sin, that his should be sinless humanity, that there should be no defilement of sin whatsoever in him, that he should be one who would commit no sin, indeed that he should be one who would fulfill all righteousness. If he did have any sin of his own, then he could not atone for the sins of others. And there is no sin in him. His humanity, his human nature is totally without sin. His sacrifice, his death, was the crowning act of a life of entire obedience to God's law, to its every precept. It was an act of perfect submission to the law's penalty. On behalf of others, on behalf of his people, he kept that law perfectly, kept its every precept in every detail, and on behalf of others, he paid its penalty, the penalty that the law demanded. In doing so, he magnified that law. He made it great. Being man, he could represent men, of course, and being God, his sacrifice is of infinite value. It avails for a great multitude, for all those who will believe in him. The precious, precious blood of Christ. Though the, the sacrifice, the, the obedience, the perfect obedience, the perfect obedience of ten million uh, sinless creatures who are, who are mere men uh, could not satisfy the broken law of God as his sacrifice has satisfied the broken law of God as his obedience has, sacrifi has satisfied the broken law of God 
and could not magnify the law as he has magnified that law and made it precious. The precious blood of Christ. How precious it is and what an obligation it lays upon us. Those who have been redeemed by that blood to live to his glory, to be holy people, to lead holy lives. We have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Redemption is deliverance by the payment of the ransom price. That is the meaning of the term redemption. Deliverance by the payment of the ransom price. The Lord Jesus Christ has paid the price that God's justice demanded for the redemption for this of his people. The justice of God demanded that the punishment be inflicted. The justice of God demanded that the penalty be paid. The justice of God demanded that the wrath due to the lawbreaker be endured. And the Lord Jesus Christ has met those demands. He has stood in as the substitute of the sinner. He has satisfied the demands of God's broken law on their behalf. He has taken the punishment. He has borne it. He has paid the penalty. He has endured the wrath due to the sinner. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He died the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. He bore the wrath of God. He so bore it that it has been turned away from believers. God poured out his wrath upon him, the wrath of God due to his people so that those who believe in him do not have to bear that wrath. His sacrifice is a wrath-removing sacrifice, a propitiation. That is the meaning of the term propitiation, a wrath-removing sacrifice. God set him forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. He has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. He has paid the ransom price for our deliverance. That is what he came to do. He came, the Son of Man came, not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And to give his life a ransom for many. He bore the wrath. All hell, as Spurgeon puts it, all hell was distilled into that cup which the Redeemer drank. That is how he has redeemed us. By his precious blood. And that lays upon us, does it not? Upon his redeemed ones. An obligation, surely an irresistible obligation. To lead a life of holiness. From what Christ has redeemed his people. How he has redeemed his people. And now thirdly let me briefly make some practical observations from this. Some practical observations. Christ died to make us holy. That is the constant teaching of the scriptures. The Lord Jesus himself in his great high priestly prayer said to his father. And for their sakes I sanctify myself. 
that they also might be sanctified through the truth. This is what I set myself apart for. For their sakes, I set myself apart to this terrible suffering that they also might be sanctified, made holy through the truth, through the very word of God. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said to them, Christ gave himself for you that he might deliver you from this present evil world. He wrote to the Corinthians and he said to them, he died for all, for all his people, that they henceforth they might live, that those who live might live henceforth not to themselves, but to him who died for them and who rose again. Paul wrote to Titus and he said to him quite explicitly, Christ gave himself for you that he might redeem you from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. It's surely very plain there. In the sixth chapter of the epistle to the Romans, Paul is expounding his great doctrine of union with Christ. His people are united to him in his death. Know you not that your old man is crucified with Christ? Why? Why? We've died with him. Why? That the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth ye might not serve sin. And not only are we united with him in his death, his people are united with him also in his resurrection. They have risen with him to walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together with him in his death, we shall be planted together with him also in his resurrection. And Paul goes on to draw his conclusion, to make his application of such teaching. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Avoid sin. Pursue holiness. Devote yourself to the doing of your duty. Be obedient, children. Be holy. Christ died that you should be such people. That is, people that is redeemed ones should be such people. How is it? that his death, that his sacrifice, that his redeeming work makes his people holy. By his sacrifice at the cross, Christ has secured for his own a change in their relationship with God. He has secured for believers a change in their relation with God. He has secured for them pardon and acceptance with God. And this lays the foundation for a gradual and progressive alteration in their character. A change and alteration not just in their status but in their actual state, in their condition, in their character. The change in their status is immediate, it's instantaneous. As soon as the sinner believes upon Christ he is perfectly righteous in his status and standing before God. And that lays the foundation for this gradual and progressive change in his state, in his character, uh, that he might become gradually and progressively a holy person. Christ, by his sacrifice, by his blood shedding, 
has merited for his people the Holy Spirit of God. He has ascended on high. He has received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit and he has sent him down. And the Spirit uh, with his sanctifying influences and uh, with his other ministries as well is within the Christian believer. The gift of the Spirit and his sanctifying influences is one of the covenant blessings belonging to the people of God. The, it is the Spirit of God it is who regenerates the sinner. He renews him in every faculty of his being, in his mind, in his emotions, his affections, in his will. The Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies him, who does this progressive work with him so the believer dies more and more to sin and lives more and more to righteousness. Christ, by his great sacrifice, has purchased for his people the sanctifying influences of the Holy Ghost. Then there is this too. The Spirit given appreciation of this great truth that Christ in his great love eh, made this sacrifice in order to redeem his people. The appreciation, I say, of that truth will kindle within the believer's heart the love of God, love for God. And the more we love God, the more we will want to obey him. There is a difference, you know, between a legal obedience and an evangelical obedience. An evangelical obedience is the product of love. Meditate much upon the dying love of Christ for you, Christian believer. And that should strike at any remaining traces of carnal enmity against God within you. And it should nourish, it will nourish. The flame of devotion to Christ, to God within you. So that you will, out of an awareness of his great love for you, eh, live for him who died for you and who rose again. The redemptive work of Christ. Surely some appreciation of this lays upon us an overmastering obligation to pursue holiness an overmastering obligation to give ourselves to obedience if you love me said Jesus keep my commandments be ye holy for I am holy but are you are you one of his redeemed ones or are you tonight still a lost sinner? Are you still in terrible bondage to sin and to Satan? Are you still on the broad road that leads to destruction? Oh, come to Christ. Repent and believe upon him. You will then discover that there is virtue enough in his sacrifice to save you. He is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. The Redeemer tonight freely invites you to come to him.
Let us pray. O Lord our God, for this great Christ, this great Saviour, this great Redeemer, thine own dear Son, the Son of God, the Son of Man, for him we give thee thanks. We thank thee for the love that constrained him to go to that cross outside the city wall, there to shed his blood for sinners, to redeem them, to make them holy. O Lord our God, we pray that we will indeed be numbered amongst his redeemed people. And we pray that having some appreciation of his redeeming love, uh, we will feel upon ourselves the overmastering obligation out of love for him to live in obedience to him. Make us, we pray, a holy people. Follow with thy blessing our meditation upon thy truth. And we pray that we will indeed meditate much upon the dying love of the Lord Jesus Christ. For his sake. Amen.